Hello and welcome to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness, the place that you come to explore the unspoken world of whiteness, or to speak plainly, where we discuss the impact of white racial identity on the world around us. I'm Miriam Francois and I'm your host, and in this episode I'm joined by academic and activist Professor Kyendi Andrews. You may have caught him jousting with Piers Morgan or conversing about revolution with Russell Brand. He's the author of, among others, Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, and his documentary, The Psychosis of Whiteness, was released this year. Professor Andrews, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me on. Pleasure, thank you. So first off, whiteness. Why do you feel that we need to talk about it? And what does it mean to you? Well, whiteness really shapes everything that we have in the world in a, in a really important way that often we don't give it credit for. Um, so in the documentary, we called it whiteness is a psychosis because it is this kind of deluded way of thinking which kind of stops us really understanding what's happening in the world. And what's happening in the world is that we have a world which is shaped by racism and inequality. And, and whiteness is one of the ways that we kind of can ignore that and pretend that everything's okay. And how do you see the relationship between whiteness and racism? I personally like to think of whiteness as maybe um, the the structure, that the way that it frames racism. Do you see it differently? Well, actually, I think that whiteness is probably more of a symptom of the problem than the problem itself. So the problem really is that we have a political economy, the world is kind of shaped the world is shaped on the basis of white supremacy. Like, look around the world. Where are the poorest parts of the world? Africa is the poorest continent. Uh, where's the richest parts of the world? This is, this is the West. This is the place where white people live. And then you have a hierarchy that goes down from Africa to, to the West. And that's not an accident. You know, that's because of the history of slavery, colonialism, continued imbalances in trade practices, et cetera, et cetera. And whiteness, whiteness is this idea that, you know, we can live in this world, but we can have this completely distorted view of it where we don't see this as being racist, where we don't see uh, these histories of colonialism and empire still acting today. And it's it's a way of kind of deluding us and keeping us comfortable because uh, we profit off a really unequal and racist system. And so is that what you're exploring in the psychosis of whiteness? Can you tell us a bit about the film? Yeah, so the idea with, the, with that is to say, well, actually, look, what is psycho what, why psychosis in particular? Um, it's because... What's the point of a psychosis? The point of a psychosis is, is, to, is, to, is to make you think you're not sick, right? So psych psychosis tend to happen with, uh, when people have mental health problems. And the whole point is to make the person believe they're not ill, right? So you have this really distorted view of reality where you believe things which couldn't possibly be true. And I think if you think about whiteness, that really is what whiteness is. Having had many conversations with people like Piers Morgan, you understand that it's just a complete, it's, 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 you're, not talking, you're not having a rational conversation. The other part of psychosis is that you have these hallucinations. So you start to imagine things which uh, support your view of the world. And what am I? What we're arguing in the film is that actually the movies, and we actually take movies as an example. So there's a movie called Bell, uh, which was made uh, a few years ago in Britain. And it, it tells the story of Bell Dido, who's maybe the only, definitely one of the only enslaved Africans who was brought up in the aristocracy. And it tells this wonderful story about how she grows up and she's in the manor house etc and we use these kind of movies and say well actually these are the hallucinations of the psychosis of whiteness these kind of stories about slavery and history are, are put there are, are done to kind of keep us in this delusion that everything's okay and so why has this psychosis of whiteness this kind of very distor distorted perception 
is it a self-perception? Is it a perception of the world? Um, how, how have we arrived at this psychosis of whiteness? Uh, yeah, and that's the important thing. It's produced by the conditions. That, so if you if you trace back what, how do we have what we have today? We have what we have today because firstly, genocide of the natives in the Americas. Secondly, slavery of African people who were then taken to the Americas and the Caribbean to produce the wealth that came today. And then you have colonialism, right? Where we the British Empire takes over most of the world and then today you still have the legacies of those things right and so whiteness is produced so that we can pretend that we don't that we don't have this problem right does that make sense so it's like it's the idea that um we can all be comfortable we can all be comfortable even today like take, take for example i know your shoes or your clothes or where your mobile phone these are produced in sweatshops uh with materials which are literally stolen out of africa which create the poverty which we all apparently are supposed to care about but we're perfectly happy to spend our money on it and then delude ourselves and thinking that everything's okay. And that's what whiteness is about. So whiteness in that sense hasn't, I think there's often a lot of confusion around the term. I know that I've been accused of racism for using the term. Um, and I know that it can create a lot of tension when you bring it up in, in conversations. Have you had that experience when you've had conversations around whiteness? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's totally uncomfortable because, and this is again something similar to a psychosis. When you challenge somebody in a psychosis on their distorting view of reality, what do they do? They get agitated. They get upset um, because it's this. Because this, you, you're kind of you're questioning their protective mechanism, right? People need whiteness, and I would also say, I would talk about whiteness. It's not just for white people. There's plenty of black people, brown people, who also kind of engage in these kind of delusions as well. But the reason why people get so upset about it. Is because this is a this is, it's an important protective mechanism. So you always find people get angry, upset, uh, uncomfortable in these conversations. And to what extent do you think that people are aware of being participants within that whiteness? Because I always find it really interesting that when I talk about uh, whiteness with predominantly um, white audiences. The, the majority response that I will get is people saying, well, I, you know, I don't even think of myself as white. So, you know, they really take umbrage at being reminded of their whiteness. And so obviously the first thing I say is, well, the fact that you don't recognize that you are white suggests that you don't believe that it's meaningful. And yet there are whole swathes of people saying it's very meaningful, that that racial identity is very meaningful. So how have we managed to get this far? And I mean, by that, I mean 2019, uh, without ever considering the impact of white racial identity, because we do hear about, you know, I feel like it's a question uh, you may even have got asked, but I know lots of people who are asked onto panels that are uh, black or brown, you know, what's it like being black and British? What's it like being, you know, Muslim and British? But we rarely ask white people to consider what it means to be white and British. How have we got to this point this far without considering it? Because if you had to consider it, then you it would undo the psychosis, right? Like if you had to say, well, actually, what does that mean to be white? Um, you would have to look at that historically. You'd have to look at that, what that means in terms of privilege. You'd have to, you'd, it would just, just, just when you start really un untangling what whiteness is, the privilege of whiteness, um, then you really have to look at the world completely differently. I mean, you just can't look at the world in the same way. I mean, that simple illustration, global inequality, is white supremacy. Like, literally, like it's the same white supremacy you had uh, during the days of slavery. 
Um, and so nobody wants to talk about it because to talk about it is to undo it. And this is why I say, again, it's, it's more like a psychosis than anything else, because there is this assumption in a lot of the literature. And there's, there's quite a lot of academic literature now about whiteness, critical whiteness studies. There is this assumption that if you can get people to talk about whiteness, you can kind of educate it out of them and they can become allies. I actually don't believe that. I think that because it's a psychosis and it has no rational bearing in, in, in anything, making people talk about it just gets them upset, gets them angry, and you'll just find they just repeat the same distorted view in a slightly different way. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I've, I definitely read a study recently that said that um, sometimes when you challenge racist stereotypes, this is a slightly different issue, but that you can actually end up reinforcing them in people's minds. So we assume, like you say, that conversing about an issue will definitely end up uh, leading to more favourable outcomes. You know, we can just talk it out. Um, but if it's not about talking about it, then what do you think are some of the better ways of challenging it well if we see whiteness as being produced by the conditions uh conditions which go back at least 500 years in terms of white supremacy in how we do politics and how we do the economy then the only way to undo whiteness is to undo the conditions which produce it so we need to have an, an economy which isn't based on the exploitation of uh black and brown labor and resources in the third world once you do that, then you can start talking about, well, let's dismantle whiteness. But if we're not going to deal with the, the economic issue, the structural issue, we'll never deal with whiteness because the two things are totally and implicitly connected. Yeah, it's, it's a really important point. And I think I, I'm wondering what you think about the, the, the one of the key arguments I've seen made repeatedly in the literature on whiteness is the argument that basically capitalism at least in its current form, couldn't possibly operate without whiteness, that it's very much entangled with racism historically and that that's not just some kind of error of history, that that's part and parcel of, of capitalism. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it, like, so the book I'm currently writing is called Empire 2.0 and it really traces this and says, actually, we think about, so one the term Empire 2.0 came from Whitehall officials talking about post-Brexit, what are we going to do? Uh, let's have Empire 2.0, re-establish Empire. The reason I called the book this is because actually we're already in Empire 2.0. Like Empire, it's because Britain get, gave up its colonies. That does not mean that the colonial relationship ended. In fact, it's kind of you have all these independence movements and et cetera, et cetera, it looks like we have freedom. But actually the world today is still just as based on racial exploitation as it ever was. And like, and like the example of a mobile phone would be the perfect example, right? I mean... The, resort, the, the reason we can have smartphones is solely because the, the resources are literally stolen out of the ground in Africa and there's not a proper rate pay for them, right? Where are they put together? They put together with, with essentially, maybe not slave labor, but labor that um, we wouldn't be done here. So why, why, have we, why have we exported all of the labor to Asia and other parts of the world? Because it's dirt cheap, right? And because it's dirt cheap, that's why everything's produced elsewhere. So we accept conditions for workers and we accept conditions in places like Africa, we don't get paid for their resources, which we just would not accept in, in the West. And the economy still depends on that. So there isn't really the basic relationship that the West will enrich itself of black and brown people is exactly the same today as it ever was. And do you see that manifesting primarily on an international stage, as in the power relations are most glaringly obvious when you look at the power dynamics between, say, the UK and individual countries? Or do you feel like it's also manifest within Britain, within the UK itself? 
so yeah, it's, it's global and it's also national. You just look at the immigration policy, we'll tell you it's definitely national. And things like the Windrush scandal, etc. Also look at how people are treated. When we accept conditions here, I mean, like, this is what the black and black youth, black youth male unemployment in some parts of the city I live in, Birmingham, is forty between forty and fifty percent. I mean, you could not, you would never accept that with white people. You wouldn't accept it, right? I look at the poverty statistics. You look at the way that, look at in America, there's some crazy stat that I think African American children are something like three times more likely to die in the first years of their life. Like the inequalities that we, they, they are stark, and they are only accepted because these are. Um, Black and minority ethnic people. I mean, some, in Britain, half of all young people in young offenders institutions are from an ethnic minority. And again, we accept these things for this exactly the same reason we accept sweatshop labour in Asia. And and so that we accept them as a society because we've dehumanised certain groups. Yeah, I mean, because, because in order to in order to oppress and colonize and to take the resources and to use the labor, you have to dehumanize people. So even when we live here, we're still dehumanized, right? It's, you, can't, you can't dehumanize us elsewhere and not dehumanize us here. And so, yeah. there's this, so there is this idea that, you know, we can, as black people, we can make it in Britain, da, 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 to some extent, but there's always going to be that other extent where, you know, like I said, if I listed off those stats and these are white people we're talking about, there'd be a national crisis. But when you list mm. off those stats and it's black and brown people, nah, <laughs> we don't do anything about it, right? And and so yeah, in terms of those those sort of glaring manifestations of the inequalities in the UK, how do you what do you see as the relationship between those inequalities and whiteness? Is whiteness the sort of cultural justification for those inequalities? Uh, so in two ways. One, whiteness is the cultural justification. It, justifi- it justifies why we don't talk about them. The other thing about that is, well, how would you, if you take a national level, how are we going to solve the problem? How will we solve these inequalities? What produces them? No, capitalism works on the way that there's, there's, there has to be poor people, right? Like, this is how capitalism is. And there's only a certain amount of jobs in the middle class, and there's only a certain amount of the elite. And that's classed, but that's hugely racialized. Like it is just far more. De- Look at the biggest inequalities in employment are in jobs like my job, where there's like no black people. Like there's almost no black people whatsoever who are professors. And there's like a yeah. hundred black professors in the whole country. And so if you th- if you say, well, what's one of the roots out of that problem? It would be you know get people good jobs, good careers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's not happening because it's not space. We don't. Get- it's so racialized that that progress up the social mobility ladder for black and brown people is is is, is blocked. Hundred percent blocked. And that's, again, that's the same, that's whiteness justifies that. Who can do these jobs, who's intelligent, who fits, et cetera, et cetera. And so it sounds like, I mean, the the Academy obviously has had um, uh, a spotlight shone on it recently because of um, a number of professors, yourselves in, yourself included, raising um, questions over um, the career progression uh, of, of academics um, from uh, ethnic minority backgrounds. And, and in that sense, do you feel that the academic institutions are a microcosm or are there, are there particularities to the challenges that you face within the academy which um, are, are somewhat different to the way that whiteness manifests more broadly? Or are there parallels there you can draw for us? Uh, well, there's a quote which I wish I had come up with, but I didn't. It's uh, someone called activist, scholar activist called Deepa Nayak, who said that the university is not racist. The university is racism. 
Mm-hmm. It just ca- it captures it perfectly because actually the university is the place that produces the scientific idea of race. Like the idea that I'm not actually a human being becomes really codified. Like before the university was like in, in Christianity and theology, etc. And then when you have this idea of um, the enlightenment and progress and science, etc., it's the university that really produces this 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 white supremacy as a firm, fixed reality. And so the universities really have a, a, a deeper role than we would usually give them credit for. Um, and if you think about think about these spaces, I mean, up until 1940, up until the Holocaust, the idea of racial science was perfectly accepted. Like it was just that was science. That was an accepted thing. And it was only after the Holocaust that that changed. So you're talking about institutions that for the most part of their lives have been not just embedded in, in the idea of racism, but actually produced it and have been spaces where, they, where there's like, like no body other than white people. So it's only relatively recently in the UK, 90s onwards, that you've had any black or minority students really in any big numbers. Um, and then in terms of staff, it's still terrible. So mm-hmm. in, in some ways, it's a microcosm. Like It's no different than NHS or government or media. But in some ways, it's actually more in, more deeply ingrained in universities because we actually still and still do produce the knowledge which justifies the whole the whole idea of whiteness itself. That's yeah, that's really interesting to me because my so my academic background is looking um, at um, post-colonial societies, specifically in North Africa, and and I was examining the ways in which um, Morocco, in this particular instance, after. Uh, independence had to undergo this kind of profound questioning of the way in which their culture, their ideals, everything from from fashion to education to the structures of politics had been uh, redefined and remoulded according to the values and beliefs of the colonizer. And one of the things that's always struck me is that while, you know, those countries, those former colonies have been have have and continue to undergo this profound process of questioning. Do you feel that we've had any kind of equivalent in the center of empire um, which would question the edifices which justified imperialism and slavery and you know mass murder in some cases has has there been an engagement with that body of knowledge which served as the kind of intellectual motor for for the brutality of empire i mean there's there's always critical scholars but honestly we're, we're just on the edge and like what typically happens is you get the idea that oh those are old ideas we moved on or in the case of someone like emmanuel kant everybody praises for his critique of pure reason we just kind of forget that actually these are the same people that also uh, created the architecture that justified um slavery colonialism etc and so what we have in this someone if you just take kant as a figure for example you know people's defenses oh well he's just what a great thinker etc etc he was also a thinker who um basically said and his, his actual moral philosophy basically uh was about you europeans he had a ma- basically on the map of the world said that europeans are the how we can it's europeans who can um become the moral human being because of our biology right africans can't because our biology is wrong so because our biology is wrong we can't cannot cannot actually it's impossible for us to reach the kind of pure moral humanity right mm. and so and you try and raise it raise this 
which seems like quite an important point to raise with the philosopher, raise this and they just they just dismiss it, right? And there's mm-hmm. no actual engagement with it. Actually, the idea of that idea of moral, what what who is the moral human being within the alignment, within the traditions which we still teach, really is that it's Europeans, it's whiteness. So there's this kind of universality that says white it's white people who can do this and you will learn it from us. And we have not engaged with that in any meaningful way. Now, I'm not sure they have in the colonies either, because if you go to like, a lot of African countries, Caribbean countries, Asian countries, they still teach the same basic stuff. In fact, in some ways, it's worse. I mean, mm. in some ways, the colonial education is worse in the, some of the former colonies than it is here. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't argue that it's been as transformative as maybe some of the figures of independence had hoped that it would be. <laughs> Uh, but I think at least there's some, at least I can only really speak for, for Morocco, but there's been at least an engagement with the idea that, you know, what is considered to be uh, a, a beautiful aesthetic or what is considered to be a sign of upper class or what is considered to be, um, uh, you know, morally de- desirable has all been uh, profoundly um distorted by um uh, an outside gaze which looked at moroccan culture prior to colonialism as lacking uh, in many ways and in need and in need uh, of transformation in order to well according to the french mission to civilize it um and and so i'm just very curious as to what extent i know there's been a movement to to kind of decolonize the academy um it, is it possible to decolonize the academy we've had this conversation at soas a little bit about whether it is even possible we talk about it but um what would that actually entail uh, no it's not i mean I, I, it's really not possible to decolonize the academy or decolonize the university and we use words like decolonize decolonize is a process of really tearing down the existing order and you can't decolonize university in a colonial system is that, and I think we really have to be honest about this, uh, and honest about what we're trying to do with, with, with these institutions. Um, and this is one of the things where, so like, a lot of the conversation about decolonizing is really about diversifying. So, you know, can we bring in some different thinkers and figures? It's not about saying, actually, yes, we need to fundamentally rethink um, the basic tenets of how we, how we act in the world. So, for example, you know, there, is, there has been this idea, probably, probably culturally and like aesthetically, the idea of you know like pro-blackness or um, is, is, is that's that has has had a very strong history, I guess. But the idea that actually the, the way that we theorize the political economy is 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 through whiteness, I don't see that very often, right? And so mm-hmm. that's what decolonizing means. It means theorizing the political economy in a way that doesn't reproduce racism. And actually, what universities tend to do. So I said, particularly when I just saw it, but all universities did do is actually a, a, a really neo-colonial agent because one of the things that one of the things that we do is we train people from Asia, Africa, Caribbean, Latin America in the terrible ways of the political economy to go back and essentially ruin their country, right? To, to mm-hmm. embed their countries into the global economy. And I don't think that we've had that serious conversation about what does a, a truly decolonial political economy, political education or economic education look like. So it it sounds to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that essentially the conversations around whether it's decolonizing or whiteness, um, for, from your perspective, can only really operate as patchwork solutions. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I write about radicalism and revolution. This, this, those are the conversations that we need to be having, as far as, as far as I can see, because actually these things are 
this is why I use a metaphor of psychosis because they're embedded in everything that we do. And whiteness can't be separated from the conditions which produce it and the conditions that produce it are the racial political economy, right? And, and sometimes when we think about whiteness, we kind of think about it as a cultural thing or as an identity thing or as something which is separate from actually the long history of racism and exploitation. And that's, that's, that's probably the worst way to think about what whiteness is. Mm. And, and so how confident are you? Because I, you know, I'm, I'm half French. I come from a, a country where um, people will take to the streets for all manner of things. And I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that people will take to the streets for um, things that, that otherwise uh, might be looked at by, by people in Britain as, as, as not warranting it. But, but we've got quite a crisis on our hands here in the UK and, and people, uh, it seems to be a very British response to sort of be like, yeah, it's not great, but, you know, have a cup of tea and it'll be fine. You know, the cold keep calm and carry on. I mean, how, how confident are you? I don't personally see a huge revolutionary spirit in this country. I wish I did, to be honest, because I, I could definitely see many reasons why there might be need for upheaval. But it just seems bizarre to me that actually there just doesn't seem to be much enthusiasm for popular movement. Um, or, or, or am I missing a trick here? Are you, are you confident there can be revolutionary change here in the UK? No, not at all. Actually, I, I actually don't think they'll ever have revolutionary change in the UK uh-huh. or, or the West or generally, honestly. And the reason, the reason I say that is because... If you look at the left and what's the left, a lot of the left arguments, they're just as based in whiteness. And what they actually often come down to is, you know, how do we share the spoils of empire better? Right. So like, for example, when we had social democracy, so like if you look at the Labour Party and now it's leftish and essentially wants some version of social democracy, right? The idea you'd share the wealth equally, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're talking the radical left now talking about cooperative boards, et cetera. Well, that's all well and good. But my dad came to this country under social democracy, and it was more like overtly racist then than it is now, right? And a lot of the politics here is all about how do we protect here? How do we protect Britain? How do we protect France? How do we get what we need? And doesn't really tie this into the global exploita- exploitation, which is really producing the, the quality of life that we have here, right? So the discussion mm-hmm. here is, is, is usually about how do we, just, can we share out the spoils of empire better rather than can we actually end the system which we all kind of benefit from. So I, 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 would, I would always argue that revolution will come from outside. True revolution, meaningful revolution, that can challenge, if you want to challenge whiteness, because whiteness mm-hmm. really dominates our politics here. And actually on that note, do you feel that there are any differences between the manifestations of whiteness here and say the US where we're quite indebted to their literature and and studies just because they seem to be quite far ahead of us in terms of engaging with it. I always think there's a huge irony in the fact that racism is so um, brutally overt in America and yet it's also somewhere where the engagement with these issues, at least in the academy, seems to be quite further much further down the line than it is here i don't know what your thoughts are on that uh yeah i guess there's two reasons one is america is just an extreme version of european racism like if you look at like america being founded it's founded by this mass genocide and then loads of different european people go and live there and it's basically free to do whatever they want right so you get this kind of extreme version where there's, there's not very there's very few controls over american uh Amer- how america develops and how american racism develops so because it's more extreme you then have a reaction to it and you can see, you can just kind of see what's happening clearer. Like we have exactly the same problems. It's just far easier to see in the States. 
And the other reason why the States is, is different from Europe is because their enslaved population was in America. So you have a big, you have this, this gigantic black population and this big Latino population. Um, and actually the people who wrote about whiteness first, unsurprisingly, were black people, right? Because we wanted to understand white people. So there's, the literature actually starts with like W.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells talks about it. And because you have that big uh, population of African-Americans who are thinking about these things, um, and you have, you know, have historically black universities and colleges, there's a, like a whole academic tradition, which, you know, we don't really have in the same way because the colonies kind of kept those two, th two things separately. Um, and so because of that, you have a much bigger tradition of, of thinking about whiteness in a concrete way. Mm. I, I actually think about that quite a lot. And I, I've often wondered whether or not, um, even in terms of the structure of whiteness, so a whiteness in which white people are the majority and black and brown people are the minority within a certain territory, um, do, I mean, my sense is that that would manifest a type of whiteness quite differently to a situation where actually if you looked at empire, black and brown people were the majority and white people were the minority uh, in, numerically. Uh, and therefore the, the form of whiteness that they had to uh, use had had to necessarily be more subtle, um, I would have thought. I don't, what, what do you think? Do you, do you feel like the numerics play into how whiteness manifests? Oh yeah, definitely. So if you look at one, why is American racism, well, I don't know, French racism is pretty extreme, but I don't know. Like, French, oh no, French, French racism is, is in, very intense, yeah. But if you look at like, you know, the like, the history of American racism where you have things like, um, you know, segregation, uh, lynching, uh, if you look at mass incarceration, those things, I mean, those are produced because you have the population, it's a big black population in America. And whereas in French, the French enslaved population, the British enslaved population, they're in different countries. So you don't have to have this whole conversation of how do the formerly enslaved live with, live with the British because they're far, they're far away, right? So you never have to have that conversation. So it does play out Different. That's why we've never had segregation in the same way. Although we kind of do, right? Like, like again, we. So I just say it's not. It's not really. It's not different. It's just it manifests itself different, but the logic of it is exactly the same. And what you find after the Second World War, when you know empire starts to come to the to the to the to, to home, if you like, is you then find that the same things which shape the American discussion shape the British discussion or the French discussion. So yes, we do have segregation. We just don't call it segregation. We do have problems with the police. Uh, we do have problems in education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't, I don't know how different it is it. Just it manifests itself slightly differently, but the logic of it is the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting as well. And and so I suppose in that sense, do you feel that the conversations that we have about whiteness should have a transnational uh, focus, or should, or is it important to kind of hone in on the national specifics of how whiteness manifests in our different contexts? No, I think well, I think both. I think obviously, you know, the other local context that need to be dealt with. But you really have to. You can't understand this. Now, Malcolm X said, "There's no such thing as an American problem. There's a world problem. It is the same problem, which 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 goes across every different inst in instance. It just ma it may manifest itself differently because of historical conditions. The other thing that's important to note then is, you know, when you look at whiteness, where is some of the places whiteness plays out the, the most is actually with the black elite who were put in in charge of places like the Caribbean, places like Africa. And that's one difference with America, right? They don't really have that to the same extent. Whereas the way that the British colony, when they left, you know, they kind of appoint this colonial elite. And they, they're they probably the biggest purveyors of whiteness in the whole entire world. 
right? Even though they're black and brown. And so this is what we have to think about whiteness, I think, you know, on an international level. And so in terms of um, offering up advice to, because um, this is something that comes up a lot in conversations around equalities, that um, a lot of white people in the room will say, well, I just don't really know where I fit into this conversation. Do you have any advice, um, given that mine is usually, well, you probably want to start thinking about whiteness and the impact of your whiteness on people around you. What would your advice be to those people in the room that say, you know, I, I do want to be a part of the solution. I do want to engage. but I just don't really know how. Uh, you know, I get this question all the time, and I never have a good answer for it. But honestly, I don't know. Like, I just be hundred percent honest. I don't know. I, um, my work's far more focused on, you know, how do what do we do? Like, what do, and particularly I write about, you know, black radicalism, black radical politics. You know, what's our response to the fact that we're in this situation? And I can give you a whole, I can give you a whole like, hour conversation about, you know, how do we respond? In terms of white people, it's it's, it's difficult, right? Because part of my argument is that it's just so embedded in what this is and it really all of us in the west and i include myself in this if it's honestly talking about justice and equality and freedom and you don't want and we don't want racism then we have to give up quite a lot right because our standards of living are so disproportionately higher than most of the world and that is because of whiteness so if i, I guess my recommendation would be to really understand to try and think about it in those terms you know it's, it's, it's not just identity it's not just privilege to get a job it is actually about life and death, right? A child dies every 10 seconds in this, now currently a child dies every 10 seconds because they don't have access to food. Every single one of those children is black and brown. That's the discussion of whiteness that we need to be having. Mm. And I suppose um, one of the responses that I had on this issue was also um, that some people say, well, hold on, we've had, we've had long enough trying to theorise our, about our own position here. Why don't white people get on and do some work about how they can address <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. the problem um, which which I fully fully take on board as well but I suppose um, I'm also always um, interested in exploring how even though you know most people in this conversation know that race is a construct that it's something that is only meaningful in terms of the ways in which um, meaning has been assigned to these constructed categories and they then have uh, real world implications for like you say people's life and death situations but how do we create a sense of common struggle whereby um, the objectives are shared or do you not feel like there can be a common struggle because of the extent to which people identified as white are implicated within so deeply within whiteness yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems with uh, politics, I, I, I say black politics, is that we have tried to find this consensus and common struggle. And I, the, what, one of the things, I'm, what, actually the reason I wrote Psychosis of Whiteness was to say, well, actually, let's just stop trying to find it because you're not going to find it, right? I mean, this is it's so embedded in the way the political economy works. Um, that you, it's, 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 and it's not, and we often talk about this like it's a, it's like a, you can, you know, like it's an argument we can debate and then everybody's going to be on our, our side. We've been on the right side of the argument for 500 years. This has not got us anywhere. And actually, sometimes we just need to go to the politics of conflict and not the politics of consensus. And trying to find consensus when it's not possible is one of the worst things we could do. So does that mean that black, the politics of black radicalism is only for people who identify as black? 
Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it really is, right? I mean, black, black radicalism is, is based on the idea that the Af- African, the African diaspora need to organize and come together for, for two main reasons. One, if you look at what is our position in the political economy, that hierarchy of white supremacy has black people at the very bottom of it, right? Like the very bottom of it. So there's a kind of a, there's a logical reason why we would come together uh, because we're in that same boat. The other reason is, I mean, historical, like, you know, we, all of us are descended from Africa. Like my parents, my, I may live here, I may, my family may be Caribbean, but they're only in the Caribbean because of slavery. All right. So it's about saying that there is a, there's a collective that we need to come together and we need to organize and we need a certain amount of independence uh, because you just can't trust, you just can't trust this idea that there's some kind of universal consensus way that the world's going to work. You can't rely on that, right? Like, that doesn't mean that black radicalism doesn't care about anything else or anybody else. It just says that there needs to be a black position and a black organization um, to protect to protect the, the interests of black people. And so is that what what would you say to people who would then say, I guess, that it plays into the constructed categories that presumably fuel racism? Are we do you not see as an end goal the idea of deconstructing those categories or do you just not feel like that's possible? Well, no, they're different. I mean, this is we conflate race and blackness all the time. So race is a European construct, which is about biology, it's about supremacy, it's about white supremacy in particular. Uh, blackness is, isn't that, right? Blackness is a response to that. It's to say, actually, yeah, we come together because we have African descent, and that col- color is the one thing which connects those two things together. But how we understand what this color means is completely different. So it's not like a biological argument. It's not a hierarchical argument. It's a, you know, this is important because it connects us into a a, 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 a movement, if you like, or a, or a polity, or it connects it to each other. Um, and this is a way that we resist European ideas of race. So I always say this is, this is a different construct. It has a different history to it completely. One of the but, solutions to white supremacy is blackness. And, but so for people of all backgrounds looking to challenge white supremacy, what, where is, it? does that mean that blackness offers a, a, a form of engagement for everyone? Or is it a form of engagement that kind of white people need to sort of sit aside and just be spectators of because I sort of feel like there's a danger in being in in the whole spectator sport as well isn't there well no I mean I think if if we really understand what whiteness is uh then we we understand that blackness is necessary and it doesn't like I said it's like it's necessary and it's important for us to mobilize around it and I would also say point out that like once you take this position then it changes the way that you see the whole entire world and so like the idea of you know anti, anti, uh, anti-colonial struggles in India or in Pakistan or in Latin America also become really important to this politics. Um, and in terms of white people, really, I mean, one of the things about black radical politics is it just says white people want to come on board and help out. Fair enough, but we don't need we don't need white people, right? This is not. And part of our problem is that we just always waiting, 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 waiting. Uh, Franz Fanon talked about what do you say? We need the Sleeping Beauty of Sleeping Beauty to wake up talking about the white working class. Mm-hmm. I'd argue we don't. We don't need that. We need to get out and do what we're going to do because you because the depth of the way that whiteness works means it's probably very unlikely that until you change the conditions which produce whiteness, um, that whiteness is going to go anywhere. That's, does that make sense? It's, it's not saying look, white people are terrible. Don't talk to white people. It's about just understanding what the what the stakes are and saying that if we're going to really challenge. Um, racism we need to have black organization and one of the ways that you destabilize the thing that produces whiteness is if you so for example if you had um 
this, if you had a black radical revolution on the African continent, why does can't exist anymore? Because capitalism depends on the exploitation of Africa. And then you can start to have a conversation about well, what does whiteness mean and how do we dismantle it? And so for your average um, kind of person in the UK who might be listening to the podcast and who's thinking, well, I really do want to engage in trying to struggle, struggle against the inequalities that I'm seeing, um, is, is the solution to just become more aware of black radicalism, whatever kind of background you're from, or is there... Uh, and obviously it sounds like being aware of the material implications of your choices, right? Where you shop, who you engage with, what you are prepared to sacrifice, which is costing other people in other parts of the world. Um, is there anything, I know you, you, you said it's not what you kind of dedicate your time to, but um, I'm always trying to think of what we can offer constructively to, to listeners. Is there any maybe reading recommendations? um yeah so okay like i said i don't want to sound like totally like because a lot of people so one of the things not surprised me but you know back to black the book it's about black radicalism but loads of white people have read the book and come and said oh it's really interesting so i think there is a there is this really important thing about how do we change how we think about the world and if you're thinking about that i would really recommend that um everybody does read this radical literature right i mean it's one of the contributions of black black radicalism was made is there is a lot of this radical literature out there so people like i mean my absolute favorite is malcolm x always mm -hmm. malcolm x kind of understands things better than most um certainly people like claudia jones there's a book called beyond containment um and she's a black marxist um so it brings in that element as well uh what we see africa must unite by kwame nkrumah is really good on you know mm -hmm. how does neo-colonial politics work how does it I mean, he wrote it in 1670s but it it really is a just an explanation of how, how the continued empire kind of works. Um, what else? Some fan, fan and stuff would be good. I mean, there's, there's definitely books out there. And I think that, I think that it's not that white people can't do anything. I really don't say that. Um, what I am saying is it does need a much fuller engagement to really, you know, understand just how implicated things are. And also I point out, it's not just for white people. People like myself, people who are born in Britain, we're in the same position there. Like, we're, I'm a professor. Of, I'm a professor. Of, I mean, that's that's one of the most privileged people in the whole entire world. So this isn't like just a discussion for for white people. It's a discussion for everybody who benefits from the system. Well, thank you so much. On that note, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. But I want to thank you, Professor Andrews, for talking with us today, um, and also thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please click and subscribe and join us for the next episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.